This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Babylon Berlin by Volker Kutcher. I love a good history drama, and I love a good piece of detective fiction. Babylon Berlin happens to be both. The series, which is also a Netflix TV show if you want to check it out, is all about a cop during the final years of the Weimar Republic in Germany prior to the rise of the Nazi Party. It's a really interesting look at a really interesting time in German history, and there's some really interesting mysteries on top of everything else. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 316, The Entrepreneur. We've talked a lot over the long history of this podcast about famous politicians and statesmen and the way they've shaped the course of Japanese history. And with good reason, politicians do, of course, have a lot of power over the course of events. But they are not the only ones who wield that kind of power. Whenever we talk about the evolution of modern Japan, we almost always come up on the close relationship between business and the state, and especially the power of the infamous Zaibatsu. These were the massive economic conglomerates, usually owned by a single family, which dominated the economic landscape of Japan prior to 1945. These powerful family businesses still have an outsized impact on Japan today, they're not what they once were thanks to post-war reforms, indeed, they're not really family businesses anymore either, but a lot of the old Zaibatsu names are ones you'd still recognize today. So today, we're going to talk about the origins of one of the Zaibatsu, Mitsubishi, and about its fascinating founder, Iwasaki Yataro, to explore how and why the Zaibatsu came to be so dominant in Japan. Now here's the thing about Iwasaki Yataro. It's very hard to say much for sure about his early life. The only good source we have for it comes from Iwasaki himself, and of course the first rule of being a good historical skeptic is not to believe the things people say about anything, especially in cases where there's some incentive to, shall we say, massage the truth, without at least some independent verification. That said, in Iwasaki's case, we have little else to go on, so here's what we know from him. Iwasaki Yataro was born in 1834 in the small village of Aki in Tosa Domain, what's now Kochi Prefecture, on the island of Shikoku. He was a peasant from a very large family. Now, the exact financial status of his family is pretty disputed. By some accounts, they were barely subsisting. By others, they were quite comfortable. The general consensus is that the truth is likely closer to the comfortable end of the spectrum, for reasons that are going to become clear in a second, but we don't really know for a fact either way. His father was apparently a good-for-nothing drunk. However, his mother and his other relatives 
were able to scrape together the cash for their son to attend a local village school. This school probably would not have covered much beyond basic literacy and some texts on ethics, probably Confucian ethics since this doesn't appear to have been a Buddhist school, but in the course of this education, the family discovered something really valuable about this young boy. He was extremely smart, apparently also quite mischievous. Now, this was of course a valuable asset, smart kids are always helpful for a family business. But there were limits on what could be done with that native intelligence, since, after all, the family were just peasants. Once upon a time, they had been samurai, but a few generations back, the family had given up that social distinction in order to pay off their debts. You could, in some domains, cash out samurai status as an incentive from the domain government, which would otherwise have to pay your family a continuous stipend. The fact that they were no longer samurai would limit the height to which young Yataro could rise. After all, he would always be just a peasant. However, he seemed to have the intellectual gifts to be so much more. And that was Iwasaki Yataro's explanation for why his family got together, scraped up some cash, and bought him status as a Golshi, roughly a country samurai. Now, what exactly that term means involves some very fine hair-splitting in terms of the gradations of samurai rank. Simply put, Golshi were usually low-ranking samurai who were so inconsequential they were allowed to reside out in the countryside. Remember, at this point, most samurai were required to live in the castle town of whatever lord they served. Golshi status opened up some new options. It allowed Iwasaki Yataro employment within the government of his home domain of Tosa, for starters. Tosa was one of very few domains where the domain government was not in some form of fiscal tailspin. In fact, Tosa had substantial business interests both within and outside of its domain borders. Yataro was now in a position to help manage those interests as, in essence, a government employee, a role his new status allowed him to take on. Iwasaki Yataro bought this new status in 1854, the same year Commodore Perry returned to Japan to force the country to sign a treaty opening itself to foreign trade. Upon becoming a Goshi, Yataro was able to secure a job as an aide to one of the senior domain samurai, who was about to make his way to Edo alongside the Lord of Tosa domain for their biennial period residing near the Shogun. Things seemed to be going great for Iwasaki Yataro. He was now at the heart of the country, learning valuable lessons about government administration, and to boot, he was receiving a stipend which allowed him to continue studying at higher-level academies within Edo. However, it all fell apart extremely quickly. Within a year, Iwasaki Yataro had returned to Tosa. The reason was his father, who had been chucked into prison after a particularly intense fistfight brought on by one of his constant sessions of drinking. Yataro went home to try and convince the domain officials who had imprisoned his father to let him go. He was, to put it mildly, less than successful. Not only did he free to fail his father, Iwasaki Yataro also managed to get imprisoned himself after indirectly implying that the magistrate handling the case was just fishing for a bribe. After a short prison stay, Yataro emerged from the slammer without a job because his old boss definitely didn't want him back anymore, and with no prospects for a new one. 
So instead, he was forced to turn to that most demeaning of professions, working as, God forbid, a schoolteacher. What kind of loser does that job for a living, huh? Still, I suppose when Amaterasu closes a jail door, she opens a jail window, because it was during this period as a schoolteacher when Iwasaki Yataro met a samurai named Toyo Yoshida. Toyo Yoshida was a fairly high-ranking samurai, but he was also under house arrest. He'd struck another samurai, nearly leading to a duel, and was now in forced confinement to just cool his jets a little bit. Toyo met Iwasaki while the former was still under house arrest, and was quite taken with the young man. When he wasn't getting into fights, Toyo was a pretty progressive figure in the domain government, advocating for increasing the domain's involvement in international trade and adopting technology from the West. He wanted smart young men under him to help make that happen. Iwasaki Yataro fit the bill nicely. So when Toyo was released from house arrest and allowed back into the domain government in 1859, he offered Iwasaki Yataro a job. You might think, oh, I see where this is going. Iwasaki Yataro is going to use his status in the domain government to start building connections and financial interests, to start a business, and he'll be positioned to do well with the government contacts he has once the old Tokugawa system comes crumbling down. That's certainly what I thought when I was doing this research, but oh my friend, you would be so very wrong. Because in 1862, his benefactor, Toyo Yoshida, was assassinated by conservative samurai extremists under the flag of Sonol Joi, honoring the emperor and expelling the barbarians, which is to say westerners, and what's more, Iwasaki, as Toyo's protege, was charged with that most samurai of duties, hunting down the perpetrators to avenge his master. Except, Iwasaki was not a samurai by birth. He'd bought his status and had no idea how to go about avenging people at sword point, so instead he went to Osaka and Kyoto for a couple months, he looked for the perpetrators, which from what we can tell means spending a bunch of time and money at inns and tea houses, and then came home to Tosa empty-handed to face the scorn of his samurai colleagues. Disenchanted by the whole experience, Iwasaki decided to sell his samurai status back to Tosa Domain in exchange for some cash, and to use that money to become a lumber merchant. This earned him some pretty substantial scorn from his former samurai colleagues, all the more so when his lumber business promptly went under in less than a year. So instead of surging ahead to meet his destiny as one of Japan's greatest businessmen, by the mid-1860s, Iwasaki Yataro was now an underemployed man in a series of odd jobs, staring down the barrel of financial ruin. But once again, a twist of fate saved him. This time it was in the form of another old samurai connection. You see, by 1867, Tosa Domain knew war was coming. Indeed, war was already being fought between the forces of the Shogun and his opponents, often Western Honshu. So Tosa Domain was buying guns like crazy, looking to build up a military of its own to defend itself, or ideally, to ensure that it could contribute effectively to whichever side looked to win. But guns were not cheap. The Domain was deep in debt to the tune of 200,000 ryo. The Domain government was scrambling to find someone who could right the fiscal ship, and that's when Iwasaki's name came up. 
So Iwasaki Yataro got a call. Hey, would you be willing to go to Nagasaki and represent Tosa Domain's financial interests? And he said, sure. Iwasaki Yataro would spend the final years of the Tokugawa Shoguns and the first years of the New Japan flitting back and forth between Tosa Domain offices in Nagasaki and Osaka, and would establish himself as the Domain's foremost financial wizard in the process. Here are a few examples of his financial wizardry. Early in the war, it was looking like Tosa Domain might not be able to field an effective army. The Domain was so in debt, it was having a hard time even consistently affording rations for its soldiers. That is, until Iwasaki hit on the idea of counterfeiting Tokugawa Bakufu currency to pay the troops. To supplement his counterfeit notes, Iwasaki also created a Tosa Domain currency that was supposed to be convertible into gold on demand. But in fact, Tosa Domain did not have anywhere near enough gold to back all the currency he produced. When Samurai came calling to convert the notes into gold, Iwasaki eventually fled back to Tosa over the Inland Sea, spreading rumors along the way that there were pirates all over the Inland Sea right now and that it was not safe to follow him, and spreading rumors once he got to Shikoku that the mainland was infested with terrible diseases and that any ship from there should be turned away. So obviously this is a somewhat unstable financial house of cards, to put it lightly, but hey, all it had to do was last to the end of the war, and to Iwasaki's credit, it did. Iwasaki was also the one responsible for arranging for Tosa Domain to borrow 300,000 ryo from an American merchant to cover its debts. In exchange, the Americans wanted exclusive rights to a series of Tosa Domain products, Exclusive rights Tosa Domain had already sold to a British merchant, so Iwasaki set about antagonizing the hell out of that guy so he would give the rights up and refuse to ever do business with Tosa Domain again. Winning over the Americans to pay these costs involved such classic business tricks on Iwasaki's part as bribing the American interpreter to massage the details of what Iwasaki was saying, getting the Americans uproariously drunk, taking the Americans to houses of ill repute on many, many, many occasions, and probably the most basic actual business move, implying many times that Iwasaki had other buyers lined up for these rights. There were no other buyers. He pulled it off, though with some cost. His cousin was assisting him in the negotiations, and was unable to handle the stress of the sheer volume of debt and the amount of duplicity involved in the whole thing. He became increasingly mentally unstable and eventually killed himself. By 1871, Iwasaki Yataro was indisputably the economic mastermind of Tosa Domain. He alone could claim credit for the Domain surviving the final years of the Tokugawa Shogunate with some semblance of a functional economy intact, and especially for helping to pay for the expensive war against the shogunate without plunging the domain into fiscal ruin. This also meant that in 1871, when the new government in Tokyo announced that the old domains were to be abolished and replaced with a newfangled system of prefectures, Iwasaki would be in a position to benefit. You see, any asset, anything owned by the old domains that was not being handed over to the new prefectural or national governments had to be sold off. Nobody was in a better position to buy up the surplus 
than Iwasaki Yataro. He even agreed to take on Tosa Domain's old debts in exchange for more in the way of assets from the old Domain government. It's not entirely clear how good of a deal this really was. The precise value of both the assets and debts he was able to buy up is pretty hotly disputed, but what's beyond dispute is that this transaction gave Iwasaki a substantial foothold in the economy of the new modernizing Japan, and once he had that foothold, he was able to exploit it to the maximum possible extent. So for example, one of the first things he was able to do with these new assets was to use them to buy up the fleets of many of Japan's former domains. Many of the coastal domains of Japan had tried to build up at least some kind of independent navy by buying ships from the west, even if their navy was just one or two ships tasked with patrolling their coastlines. Some of these ships were acquired by the nascent Imperial Japanese Navy. Far more were not, and were left to the disbanding domain governments to sell. The samurai officials tasked with selling them were not, to say the least, particularly savvy businessmen, and so Iwasaki was able to, if you put it generously, get a pretty good deal, or if you put it less generously, swindle them from Kochi to Hokkaido and back again. With this growing fleet, Iwasaki established the beginnings of his company in 1873, the Mitsubishi Trading Firm. Mitsubishi is just a literal description of the logo, it just translates as three diamonds. Iwasaki chose the logo in part because of its resemblance to the old mon or crest of Tosa Domain, and in part because his own family crest was three diamonds stacked on top of each other. Iwasaki's new Mitsubishi fleet was in the business of coastal shipping, which was a growth field in a modernizing island nation looking to expand its industrial base. There were companies cropping up all over Japan to make use of the surplus vessels of the old domains to fill this need for shipping, but most of them were rapidly crushed by Mitsubishi. Iwasaki was, among other things, not at all hesitant to run his company without short-term profits in order to undercut his competitors' pricing, which is pretty effective at driving competitors out of business if you can afford to do it. Before long, Mitsubishi's only remaining competitor was something called the Yubin Jokisen Kaisha, the steamship mail company. This was a shipping conglomerate backed by some of the biggest names in Japanese business at the time. The centuries-old Mitsui family, among others, were major stakeholders, and they were supported by subsidies from the government backed by the pro-Mitsui finance minister Inoue Kaoru. Government backing kept the steamship mail company in business, but it couldn't beat Mitsubishi. In large part, this was because the steamship mail company was run entirely by former samurai, mostly with government pedigrees. Their sense of social superiority made them genuinely, truly terrible at customer service. Company officials, who often still wore their samurai swords to work, oversaw a company rife with overcomplicated bureaucracy with an attitude of substantial condescension towards their customers. Iwasaki, meanwhile, instructed his subordinates, even the samurai among them, to, and this is a direct quote, worship the customers. The customers, in turn, came to vastly prefer the quality of service from Mitsubishi. The real coup de grace came in 1874, when the Japanese government was looking, for reasons we've talked about before, to send soldiers to Taiwan. 
The previous year, Okinawan sailors shipwrecked on Taiwan were attacked and killed by Taiwanese aborigines. The Japanese government, looking to demonstrate its role as the protector of Okinawa in the lead-up to annexing the islands, decided to launch a punitive expedition to the island, which was claimed by China's Qing dynasty. This in turn led to protests from China, and as a result, Western shipping firms refused to help carry Japanese soldiers to Taiwan for fear of violating neutrality in the conflict between Japan and China. But the nascent Imperial Japanese Navy did not have the kind of troop transportation capabilities needed to ferry soldiers to the island on its own. So there was a need for more ships to carry soldiers to the island, and only a Japanese firm could take the contract, and in the end, the government decided to give that contract to Mitsubishi, not to the steamship mail company. You see, a political shakeup earlier that year had seen Inoue Kaoru lose his job as finance minister to a fellow named Okuma Shigenobu, the same guy who would go on to found the Kaishinto later in his life. Iwasaki had seen the political writing on the wall and gone out of his way to cultivate a friendship with Okuma via the classic approach, taking him to expensive bars and restaurants and houses of ill repute and such. As a result, Okuma was well disposed to Mitsubishi and to Iwasaki Yataro personally, and handed him one hell of a contract. Exact figures are hard to come by in an age before public records request in Japan, but by all accounts, a great deal of money changed hands, and as a result, Mitsubishi was able to pay up pretty much every debt it had from Iwasaki's aggressive plan of expansion and make a healthy chunk of change in the process. And when the steamship mail company then ran out of cash and was forced to shut down without the government patronage which had once sustained it, Iwasaki Yatoro was in a position to buy up their shipping fleet on the cheap with the money he'd made in his contract with the government. In possession of a shipping fleet of some 37 ships by this point, Iwasaki managed to turn Mitsubishi into a de facto shipping monopoly when it came to coastal shipping, and he was able to open Japan's first international shipping route run by a Japanese company between the ports of Yokohama and Shanghai. Indeed, just how powerful Mitsubishi had become as a firm became clear in the years 1876-77, to 77, when Iwasaki was able to defeat challenges to his stranglehold over domestic shipping in Japan from not one, but two foreign firms, one American and one British. The friendship of Okuma Shigenobu as finance minister, as well as a fierce campaign within the Japanese press to pressure Japanese nationals to support Japanese firms and not foreign ones, proved too much of an edge for either of these foreign firms to overcome. Using the financial base from his secure shipping business, Iwasaki was able to expand Mitsubishi aggressively, from its initial background in shipping into areas like mining, banking, newspapers, and even insurance. By this point, Mitsubishi was clearly a major player in the Japanese economy, but in the 1880s both the company and Iwasaki in particular saw a pretty big reversal in their public image. In the 1870s, Mitsubishi had been one of the darlings of the Japanese press, the plucky Japanese company proving it was a match for any Western firm. However, once Iwasaki Yataro had a near monopoly on coastal routes around Japan, he started to do what any good monopolist does, 
jack up his rates because where else are you going to go if you need something shipped? At the same time, Iwasaki was taking the money he got in government subsidies from his buddy Okuma Shigenobu and plowing it into his new business ventures, not into the shipping businesses which were supposed to be getting the subsidies. The goal was to be supporting the shipping industry as important to the security of Japan, not to fund Iwasaki's personal business ventures with taxpayer money, but apparently he didn't get the memo. As a result, Mitsubishi went from a darling of the Japanese economy to a villain within just a few years. Partially, this was, for sure, Iwasaki's fault. Iwasaki was not, in business terms, a patriot. Probably the best example of this was the Seinan War, also known as the Satsuma Rebellion, in 1877. This was the moment when the samurai and former government leader Saigo Takamori rose up against the very establishment he helped to found, his rebellion was crushed by the government. However, that crushing required the government to move soldiers to the island of Kyushu to confront Saigo's rebel army, and so once again the government was in the very same spot of needing to move soldiers over water and not having a navy capable of doing so on its own. Iwasaki Yataro was, of course, happy to lend his 37-ship fleet to the cause, he would naturally need some uh, fiscal compensation from the Japanese government to help cover his costs. To say Iwasaki Yataro fleeced the Japanese government in his contract to ship soldiers and equipment to Kyushu would not, to my mind, be an understatement. He not only managed to make a substantial profit off of this contract, he managed to score an interest-free $700,000 loan from the government in the process of all of his negotiations, to modernize his shipping fleet. Iwasaki also decided to stop taking yen as a form of payment in the 1870s. The financial policies of the Japanese government had resulted in the yen depreciating in value. In other words, the value of yen relative to other currencies was going down, and thus the same shipping rates in yen were now worth less money. So Iwasaki started taking only Mexican silver dollars as a form of payment, and continued to crush competitors through cost-cutting and refusing to transship any goods being handed off to another firm. By 1880, Iwasaki was one of the indisputed kings of Japanese industry and one of the richest men in Japan. He was dining regularly with leaders of government and with important foreign dignitaries, a rumor even started circulating that he was ordering people to address him as Gozen-sama, very roughly, my lord, a title reserved for former daimyo and members of the emperor's privy council. All of this was, unsurprisingly, leading to Iwasaki's popularity as a public figure tanking even as he became richer than he'd ever been before. In 1880, he fended off a renewed challenge to Mitsubishi's shipping monopoly from a major competitor, Mitsui, and solidified his position as the king of Japanese shipping. At the same time, he was under constant attack in the press. This barrage of anti-Iwasaki coverage has a fantastic name, the Umibozujiken, the Sea Monster Affair. Iwasaki was the sea monster. It's not subtle journalism we're talking about here. Newspapers started to catch on to the anti-Iwasaki sentiment and publish editorials condemning his behavior. Here's one example of one of those editorials. 
Mitsubishi fails to repair its ships, but is it not a shipping business? Is there not a subsidy for repairs also? Is the large subsidy insufficient? The answer is that Iwasaki, since 1878, has diverted a large amount of his funds for other activities. His interests in banking, mining, newspapers, and marine insurance are reported to exceed 1 million yen. This wealth explains the use to which government subsidies have been put." Unquote. Less subtle and high-minded protests against Mitsubishi's behavior simply saw people hanging Iwasaki in effigy at Slay the Sea Monster rallies. Iwasaki's political allies started to desert him, even before ultimately being forced out of government for his liberal policies in 1881, Okuma Shigenobu was already working to distance himself from the sea monster and publicly labeled Iwasaki's behavior as corrupt. There was a barrage of criticism of Iwasaki for misusing government subsidies, for price gouging, and especially the whole Mexican silver dollar thing, which was framed not unjustifiably as an abandonment of patriotic duty to support good Japanese currency in favor of profit-minded short-sightedness. Iwasaki's collapsing public approval meant he was now vulnerable in a way he had not been for a very long time. His opponents worked to capitalize on this. Mitsubishi lost its government subsidies, and Okuma's replacement as finance minister, Matsukata Masayoshi, began backing a rival shipping firm, the Kyodo Unyu Kaisha, or Cooperative Transportation Company. Matsukata even arranged for 12 government ships, originally slated for the Imperial Japanese Navy, to be sold to this company, which was owned by Iwasaki rivals whose names I will not trouble you with, because even though they're important and interesting, we've talked about a lot of names already. The company had a huge war chest, about 6 million yen of starting capital, and was prepared to fight Iwasaki's fire with fire of its own. Iwasaki had become a monopolist by undercutting his competitors' prices, so his competition would do the same thing. What followed was a brutal competition, a price war, between Mitsubishi and the Cooperative Transportation Company. Both slashed their rates. The average cost of a ticket from Yokohama to Kobe fell from 5.5 yen to half a yen in the span of about two years. Both companies spent huge amounts of money on swag for their customers, 30 sen of branded fans and towels, so just about 60% of the overall cost of the ticket, went into this stuff. Most dangerously, both companies competed to cover the distance the fastest, pushing their steamship engines to the absolute brink and sometimes well over it. Engine explosions caused by overtaxed boilers became more and more common for both Mitsubishi and its opponent. That, in turn, involved some expensive payouts, salvage operations, and other things. One Iwasaki biographer noted that between July 1882 and October 1884, both companies combined had scores of minor incidents and six major ones where the ships involved either sank or were rendered 100% unseaworthy. I was not able to find figures for any deaths associated with these accidents. I would guess there were a few. This is clearly not financially sustainable for either company. In addition to running at a loss, both companies were losing customers who were increasingly watching these steamships literally blow up in transit and taking the choice to, you know what, just ride the train instead. 
By late 1884, there was talk of a ceasefire. Both companies sat down at some rather testy talks and came out with a merger which would combine them into a single new company, with Mitsubishi as that company's largest shareholder. That agreement was signed in January of 1885. By that point, though, all the stress had taken its toll on Iwasaki. His health began to falter very rapidly. Soon he went to a doctor and was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Just one month after vanquishing this final rival, he died on February 7, 1885, at the age of 50. His funeral and the commemoration ceremonies surrounding it saw 50,000 attendees total, including most of the major movers of the Japanese economy. Iwasaki was now gone. His company was not. His successors in the Iwasaki family continued to run the family business out of Iwasaki Yataro's substantial western-style mansion on the grounds of the former Sekakibara clan residence in Tokyo until the American occupation and the financial reforms brought an end to the great family Zaibatsu. So what can we make of this guy? Well, for starters, talk about a story of social mobility. Through a combination of business sense, whining and dining, and a willingness to, well, let's call it cheat, Iwasaki was able to become one of the most important people of his time. It's quite a climb from the son of a drunk peasant to the gozen-sama of the Japanese economy. Second, I think Iwasaki is interesting because of his relationship to the government. Today, Mitsubishi tries to portray Iwasaki as a Japanese patriot who is all about building up the economic might of his homeland, but I think really any close look at his actual behavior suggests a very different set of motivations. Iwasaki's first loyalty was clearly to Mitsubishi, and he was very good at taking advantage of opportunities presented by the government to build up his business empire. This was not some public-minded businessman who happened to run a corporation. Iwasaki was, as most businessmen are, in business to make money. The government was instrumental in creating Mitsubishi, though. Those government contracts were what made Iwasaki's aggressive economic expansion possible. But this was not so much intentional policy as it was simple economic fact. The government needed services, Iwasaki set things up so that only he could provide. Read this way, the creation of this Zaibatsu, at least, looks more like a result of historical happenstance than any deliberate policy. Iwasaki's meteoric rise didn't happen because he was chosen by the government for this role. It was because he was in the right place, at the right time, with the right resources, to take advantage of an opportunity when it presented itself. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Jeff and Billy Davies, and to Dario Molinari and Oliver Claquin for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we explore the life and career of one of Japan's most fascinating writers, Higuchi Ichio.